Thank you all so much. Well, I hope you're not overwhelmed or intimidated by the notes I give you tonight. There was a song out when I was in junior high school called To Dream the Impossible Dream. And I am going to do my very best to attempt in one message without wearing you out to summarize the book of Revelation for you. Those of you that have been with me through this series, um, you already are going to be familiar with much of what I'm going to share with you and then I'm going to wrap it up. It's interesting to me that the book of Revelation has been the subject of so much controversy, so much speculation, and so much guessing through the years. It's almost as though the introduction of the book of Revelation is not correct. It's almost like you could write an introduction for the book of Revelation. Behold, I give you a book that you can speculate about, guess about, argue about, fuss about, disagree about. A book that you can come up with the weirdest conceptions about. And that's not what the book is all about at all. And I gave you two inches on the side for taking extra notes. There are no fill-ins tonight. So... You can track along with me, but if you want to take some extra notes. But I just thought, just before I walked out here, I just finished a meeting in my office, and um, I thought I would read this to you right now. Just to remind you, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. And he sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report, the word of God. And the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. That's me. <laughs> I want my blessing. But he also blesses all who listens to the message and obey it. What it says for the time is near. That's all of us together. Can you say amen? amen. So that's important to understand. You know, Jesus doesn't confuse us. Jesus doesn't seek in some way or another to give us something that will confuse us, but rather he wants to help us to understand the times that we're living in and his message for us as well. I thought it would be helpful if I went back and just looked, showed you just because I promised you when we got to the end of this book, you could understand it. It would be a blessing to you to read it. But here are some interpretive models that are used and you can always, if you've got these down in your heart and mind, when you're reading books or things that people say about Revelation, then you can kind of get an idea of where they come from. There's the idealist uh, interpretive model, and that is just simply they believe that the book of Revelation is to give us those timeless principles from the Word of God. That's a good, good principle, but there's a flaw in it in that it also denies what God has also put into this book when it comes prophetically. So we have to keep that in mind. The principles, yes, but we don't want to deny the prophetic value of this book. Secondly, is the historist. And this is the people that I have a little bit of the struggle with. And that's the people that believe that Revelation gives you a very detailed roadmap of the end of time until Jesus returns. That's not at all what the book is to be designed. The preterist view is that we read the book, we read Revelation, as the seven churches would have understood it. And that's what we've been tried to do. I've tried to bring you to times and go, 
All right, this is what that church would have understood. This is how that fits. Obviously, the seven hills would have been Rome. And the Romans would have known they were talking about the seven hills. But there were some other things that we talked about. And if you go back or if you have questions, I'll be happy after the service tonight to talk to you about those as well. However, some preterists believe that all, all of these these prophetic things have been fulfilled, which they have not. There are parts of the book that haven't been fulfilled. But the value of it is, is that it helps us to read and to make sense of what the first century hearers would have heard. And if you remember when I taught on this, that night I taught on this, I said it's important if you're going to, to read in context what the Bible says about any book, you've got to read it as the first people would have heard it and then compare it to other chapters and verses as well. The futurist believes that some of the events are waiting to be fulfilled, which we definitely believe that there's value in that as well. And then the eclectic, which is kind of what I tend to be, is a mixture of the idealist, the preterist, and the futurist. And that is, before you contextualize the book, you need to understand not only the history, you not only need to understand the grammar, you also need to understand the, the intent of what God was saying. And that's the reason I opened up by going back tonight and reading to you, um, well, what you were taught in school, a salutation. You know, where you read a letter and you start out by, you know, what the purpose of the letter is. And the purpose of the letter is to give us the Word of God and help us to see Jesus. And then it also helps to have an understanding of symbolism. And where that has been important to talk about, uh, I've tried to do that as well with you. I sat down uh, this morning, early this morning again, and reread the entire book one more time. It's, and I've encouraged you periodically from time to time. It's good just to take and read the book through. It doesn't take long to read it through. Don't read it too rapidly, but don't try to read it too slowly, but just read the book like you would read a letter that if you and I were corresponding, you know, email is not a good example of that because we're very short and to the point. Sometimes we don't even punctuate correctly, but read like you would read an old-fashioned handwritten letter, what young people call snail mail today. So let's look at chapter 1. Chapter 1 was a vision of Jesus and the topic of his message. I've already read you those verses, so we won't reread Revelation 1, 3. It's there. But one of the things that comes out of this chapter is that God wants the church to be a light. We don't want to blind the world with condemnation, but we want to glow with the very love and the warmth of Jesus Christ to a darkened world. Now remember, I've got 22 chapters to cover, so I'm going to be brief. That's a summary of chapter 1. Chapter 2 and 3 is a letter to seven different unique churches that existed. Remember the letter, as I shared with you, would have been read and shared. It would have been shared not only in those literal seven churches, but it would have been shared widely and broadly. So remember that night I used the illustration was that uh, if I lived in Ephesus and you lived in Pergamum and Matt lived in Smyrna, we would be reading each other's mail because when the letter was read, I also found out what God was saying to Matt and Smyrna. I would have found out, for instance, what Jeannie was hearing in Pergamum, and I would have maybe listened in, in the Church of Philadelphia. So that's, that's the important to understand. Everybody would have known your business at that time. If you've ever lived in a small town where everybody knows your business, or if you remember the old Cheers uh, uh, television show that started out, Everybody Knows Your Name. Yep. 
That this is a letter that everybody was reading where Jesus was criticizing the church and, and condemning the church uh, for some of their behaviors. They would have read about that and understood that. And here's what he basically said. Number one, Ephesus has got to repent of their loveless rigidness and return to their first love, Jesus Christ. Now, they had their doctrine down. They had their practices down correctly. They were like a lot of legalists. They're doing everything correctly. The only problem is they're not doing it with any love, any love for God or any love for themselves or any love for lost people. Rather, they're proud of themselves. They're very proud of themselves, and they take a spiritual pride in who they are and in their accomplishments. It's the same thing that you would have read about the Pharisees. Smyrna is commended because Smyrna was showing courageous faithfulness. There, the people of this congregation were actually being put to death. They were being martyred. They were being persecuted. Some of them could not buy or sell. They would have understood the mark of the beast that we'll look at a little later on in the summary tonight. Pergamum is facing persecution and they're being tempted to compromise. God, listen, God knows what you and I are thinking tonight. God knows what you and I are doing tonight. And those times when I'm by myself and I say I'm alone with my thoughts, I'm never really alone with my thoughts. God is always with me. God knew what was going on in the life of that church. And so they're facing persecution. God understands that. He understands the temptation, but we can never compromise our fidelity to Jesus Christ in order to save ourselves. We must be willing to die for Christ. If we try to save our lives, we will lose it. If we lose our lives for his sake, we will gain our lives. Amen? The fourth thing, Thyatira has got to confront this prophetess of compromise. You remember there was this Jezebel that Jesus called her. And uh, I just heard somebody go, mm-hmm. Andrew was a little guy and um, Becky was in the grocery store with him when he was sitting in the buggy down in Georgia and they had, had talked about Jezebel in Sunday school and had seen all the artwork that somebody had come up with Jezebel and he was looking at this woman in front of her and she was all dolled up and Andrew looked at her and he says, are you Jezebel? And she turned around and looked at him and she looked at Becky and she says, well, I guess I do look a little bit like her, you know. Well, this Jezebel, this Jezebel was teaching false doctrine in the church and causing people to compromise sexually. It's a lot of what's happening today that you're reading about. And matter of fact, I just told Becky recently, I said, I'm working on a message. I'm working on a message that I'm going to be preaching later on the year. I always do a message every year on sex. And, and it's probably the most requested topic I get asked to speak upon. And I says, I'm going to call it Holy Sexuality. And Becky and I were going, she's, that's a great title. Well, somebody's written a book called Holy Sexuality and stole my, my title, but I'm going to use it anyway because I thought of it, okay? So, you know, th there's this unholy sexuality that's being taught today. And this is what Jezebel, this prophetess of compromise, and then Sardis is the model of nice Christianity. In other words, they wanted to be inoffensive in everything they did and, and be trying to be nice and trying to be inoffensive. They were actually losing their passion for Christ. They were losing their edge. They were, they were compromising. And God says to this church, you better wake up. You better repent. And remember, he was saying to churches, I will come and remove your candlestick among you. Never think, never think that in a generation, a church can't be lost. I've seen it happen over and over. I just sat down with a pastor recently who just wept telling me about how their church, just because of, 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 of spiritual deadness, had just closed its doors and died. And 
And so, friends, we, we've got to keep our passion alive for Christ. And we need to understand that we're responsible for passing this along to the next generation. And Philadelphia is the church that I use as a model for Woodland. It was a church that loved one another. They loved God. They loved each other. And they practiced loving one another. And Laodicea was a wealthy church, but it was a complacent church. And because they were wealthy and because they, and if you remember, I showed you pictures of the ruins of Laodicea when we got here. They felt like they had need of nothing. And in all their wealth, Jesus looked at them and says, you don't realize that you are wretched, you are poor, you are blind, you are miserable. Friends, God is not impressed by our degrees or our economic status. God is impressed by our hearts for him. Amen. And so that's important to understand. Chapters four and five. Boy, we really get a worship of what, I mean, a, a look at what the book is all about, and that's worship. And I often tell people, if you really want to understand Revelation, you have to understand the entire book is about the worship and what's going on in heaven and how we're to worship the Lord right now. The worship in heaven is our in invitation to worship the Lord in the life that we're living at this very moment. When we see how God is glorified and how God is magnified, and I apologize for continuing. I, I, when I got my mic tonight, it was all bent and twisted, and I did my best just now to get it back, but it keeps sliding down here. Um, we, we, <clears throat> we're invited to participate and to worship the Lord this evening the same way they do in heaven. Look at this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. And whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O God, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. Everything you see, and I talked about this Sunday morning, everything you see in this three-dimensional world we live in exists because of the Word of God. And the realm of the Spirit is much more real than this realm that we live in right now. And that's another reason we know that we're going to live forever. It's where songs like, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty come from. It's where songs where we sing like, worthy, worthy, worthy are you, Lord. Worthy to be worshipped and worthy to be adored. It's where songs like, I will come and fall down and worship you, O Lord. It's, this is this passage that that is drawn from because we see the, the worship and the joy, the reverence and the adoration. There's so much that goes on in these two chapters. And, Boy, if you're going to go home and reread any chapters before you go to bed tonight, I'd say go to Revelation chapter 4 this evening. One of the interesting things that happens is that Jesus, again, the Old Testament symbolism helps you. Remember, Jesus comes forward. They're saying, who's worthy to open the seals? Who's worthy to break the seals? And nobody was worthy until the Lamb of God stepped forth. Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay, our debt of sin. He paid that at Calvary. And the lamb, we see the very, in chapter four, we see that the center of the universe, it's not the lion of Judah, it's the lamb of God. And that's interesting to me because we're, we're right to sing about the lion of Judah. But when you look at the center of the universe, what you see is a lamb that had looked as though he'd been slain. The reason you and I are going to be in heaven is not because of our good works. It will be because Christ, our kinsman redeemer, was willing to give his life for us at Calvary and therefore was willing to break the seals. 
And that's so important. You remember Boaz and Ruth. I use that illustration of how Boaz and Ruth, he was the kinsman redeemer and, and redeemed Ruth. And Ruth was a Moabitess. She wasn't a Jew, but he redeemed her, made her his wife. It's a prophetic type and a prophetic figuration of you and I as Gentiles coming into the bride of Christ and the wedding supper of the Lamb that we'll look at in a few moments. Jesus has taken us Moabitesses and, and every one of us from whatever our backgrounds that we come from. Jesus has transformed us into a kingdom of priests who will reign upon the earth. And sometimes when I'm listening to the news and I'm listening to people talk about, and I, and I shared this Sunday morning, that remember the old song, Dizzy? I said, if you're listening to the political ranting and raving right now, it seems like, and I had someone from London call me today, and I said, it seems like our whole system has just gone crazy right now. There are three things that give me hope, and that is, the number one is that God is still on the throne. Number two, I know personally some very strong believers that are in government. In government. And number three, the book of Revelation. I know that God has a plan. I know that he has a plan, and it gives me confidence. But you wonder who's telling the truth and what's really real anymore. Our students are asking, what does it mean to be a human being? And I love science, so please don't take this wrong tonight when I, when I say what I'm doing and why these two chapters are so significant to understanding who we are and why they're so significant to the book. Because if you ask science today, and people who treat science like a God, let's use it like that, because as Christians, we love science. Theology is the mother of science. We love science. But if you ask the science God and the science idol today, how did it all begin? And he's going to say an accident. And if you ask the science God today, how's it all going to end? The science God will say, probably by an accident. And if you ask the science God today, What's really real? Is there, is there a moral code that we're to live by? Is there, is there an ethical code we, we, we should live by? The science God will probably tell you, I don't know, because the evolutionary teachings is that he who is the strongest survives, that the red law, the, fa the red fang of the jungle, that law, the red fang, that's who's going to survive. And Jesus teaches us something altogether different, completely different. And so it's important that we understand when we look at this, Revelation gives us the meaning of history. It takes us back to Genesis, as I shared with you when we went through the book of Genesis, and as I shared with you in this series, that everything you find in those first three chapters you find in the book of Revelation. We understand the meaning of history. We understand how it started. We understand by whom it started. We understand by whom it all holds together. And we understand how this broken world can be fixed. And we understand what the end of history is going to be about. Can we give him a hand of praise for that tonight? If I ask you to do that one more time tonight, disobey me. Because there's a lot more to go. I shouldn't have asked you to do that. i got to keep going here. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 says there's an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. Chapter 6 through 8. Those are those infamous four seals that we've talked about. Remember the four horses? The white horse represented conquest. The red horse represented war. The black horse represented famine. And if you remember the pale green horse, and I told you that word is where we get our, our word for chloroform, that pale green. 
It's like Clorox. That it's, it means there will be death by all kinds of various means, diseases and things if you read, read through the book. But you also see the saints on earth and the saints in heaven. That while this is taking place, that there are people, those of us who go in the rapture, we're going to be there worshiping the Lord. Those who have died in Christ, like my father and, and, and some of your family members that I have buried from this congregation, we're going to all be in heaven if you and I are, are, are still living and we're fortunate enough to be caught up in the catching away of the saints. The word rapture is not in the Bible. The Greek word is parousia and it means the catching away. We will rise to meet him in the air. I'm so excited about that. The more I think about it and the more I dream about it, what that is going to, to be like one day. But dear brothers and sisters, we'll be worshiping the Lord in heaven. But this is very clear that even during this time, God will be protecting his people upon the earth. It will be like when the, the judgments, and remember we went back to the, book of, uh, to, to the book of Exodus, it will be like when the judgments came upon Egypt, but in the land of Goshen, when there were frogs, there were no frogs in Goshen. When there was darkness, the sun shone in Goshen. God is able to supernaturally provide for us during the worst of times. And that's very important to remember. So we see the saints on earth and heaven. Look at Revelation 7 and 3. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. Those tribulation saints, as we call them, those tribulation saints, they're still being salt and light in this world. And in Revelation 7, 9, John sees into, into heaven and, and you and I will be there. If you and I will be there. After this, I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And that is so exciting to me. The seventh seal introduces in the seven trumpets. There have been seven seals that have been broken now. Now the seventh one introduces the seventh trumpets. And what you see is here the power of prayer. The power of prayer. In Revelation 8, 4... The smoke of the incense is mixed with the prayers of God's holy people and ascends up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Beloved, I can't overestimate the value of your prayers for me and for one another. I've often told Becky when we've left on a Sunday, I said, I can tell when people have been praying just as clearly and when people have not. When it's been busy, and I know that people have had things going on. There is a power. There is a freedom. There is a liberty. There are, it's just like, uh, what was it, four weeks ago in one service, 10 people crossed the line. Another service, there were hands in every seat. Guests were here. We've been having so many guests come. When people gather here on Saturday night and are praying, there is a sense. But those prayers rise up like incense to the Lord. We don't, and I'm not taking a cheap shot, so please don't read this this way. We don't go around waving incense and burning incense in our church. That's a symbol. What we want is the reality of the people of God in intercessory prayer. And that's what we're looking for is not form and ritual. We're looking for the reality. And so the smoke of the incense was mixed with the prayers of God's holy people. And during this time, when that first angel comes out with the, with the, with the seven trumpets, the very first thing you see is the prayers of God's people. In chapter 9, we're looking at God as those trumpets are blowing, invasions are taking place in the world. Things are happening horribly. 
plagues, war. I mean, these four horses have, these four horsemen have been released. And, and I told you back then, and, and I'll remind you again, if you can get a hold of the co uh, copy of the book that uh, Billy Graham wrote, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. It's a great book to read, just a powerful book to read, very balanced book. But during this time, what God is doing is his, his whole desire is to bring people to repentance because those that miss the rapture and are here during that seven years, that first three and a half will be peaceful, that second three and a half is going to be horrible, terrible, like no other time. And you imagine what's happening today or what happened with Hitler. I was reading a summary of, a, of, of the treatment of the Jews in, in World War II, this, and it just, parts of it just, you know, I, I, I've seen the things, but just reading this particular summary, just broke my heart again. Just how could human beings be so evil and so cruel to one another? How could they practice the things? And we are still learning now that more and more information is getting out of an island less than 100 miles, I think, off of our southern shore, Cuba, of how Christians were treated under Fidel Castro. And the things that my son was telling me in his two visits down there and what they were learning the torture of people. One Christian pastor kept in a coffin for 90 days. Kept in a coffin for 90 days. Stuck in a pit of human excrement for weeks. Injected with diseases. Why? All because he would not renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. And so we, if these are unimaginable horrors they're nothing compared to what's going to be happening in that second half of the tribulation. And the reason God allows that is so that people would repent. And as horrifying as these judgments are, they should cause you to repent. And I'm always amazed when I see horrible things happen to people. And I think, now they're going to repent. They're going to see the futility of their life. Somebody gets an STD. Somebody gets hooked on drugs. Their child gets hooked on drugs. Or pornography takes over their life. Or they've gambled away their fortune. I think, now they'll repent. Instead, they get mad at God. And what they're, you know, friends, hear me tonight. The very purpose of these invasions are aimed at the repentance and these horrifying judgments. But they do not. Because it's going to leave people without an excuse. Because they've been blessed and they didn't repent. They've been judged and they don't repent. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continue to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their witchcraft, or their sexual immoralities, morality, or their thefts. So when you read that... Don't mistake that idols are just idols of silver. Anything you put before God is an idol. And don't think, that, well, I've never killed anybody, but if you hate somebody, Jesus says, you've murdered. Don't think if you've been faithful to your wife, but you're bound up in pornography and you're lusting over images or you're lusting over, or you're, you're flirting or something like that, constantly trying to be sexually attractive to someone. Don't think... I mean, friends, there's a reason that people do what they do. And God, maybe tonight is speaking to some of you even in here. I would be shocked because I know you. But maybe God is even speaking to you tonight. And so when you read this book, remember 
It's a mix of all those interpret. There are principles here that are designed to bring us to repentance and well. Prophetically, this is going to happen. But we're saved by grace, not by works. And I'll wrap that up in a few minutes and show you why I took a little bit of time right here. So beware of compromising with the world. Beware of compromising with the world. Don't envy the world. In the economy of God, people are always more important than products. In the economy of God, it's not our plans and our successes that matter. It's God's plan in our lives. And as we wait upon the Lord and seek Him, like I mentioned Sunday morning, sometimes you have to stick your neck out and, you know, don't be passive. I think passivity is one of the greatest sins of the church. We're waiting on God to do something. You know, after you pray, then it's time to do something. And if you're not sure, just do what Jonathan did. Take a calculated risk and, and step out and, and, and say, God, if this happens, then we're going to know it's going to, we're going to keep going. But if it doesn't, we're going to do what Jonathan did. We're going to get our fannies back on the other side of the river. And I had a pastor call me yesterday. Becky's in the car. We left a funeral and was on our way to make a hospital call for someone that had surgery. And, and so I had a pastor call me and from another state and was asking me some questions and trying to make some decisions. And I told him what I told you. You know, passivity can be their greatest sin. We're waiting on God to do something. And I use that illustration that I shared with you about Jonathan. And he goes, oh, my goodness. I just read that in my devotions and I thought this morning. He said, I read it this morning. He calls, he calls me pastor, you know. He goes, I read it this morning, pastor. And he says, I thought, what has that got to do with me? He said, it was almost like, this means, you know, I need an answer, God. And he says, now I see, that's my answer. <laughs> Don't just sit there and do something. <laughs> and people matter to God. Lost people matter to God. And so whatever you do, be sure that you do it in an honorable way and that you're in a business or work or job that honors God. Revelation 10. You feel like we're cooking with gas? <laughs> Revelation 10. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard the vo a voice from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said. Do not write it down. The reason I selected this verse from chapter 10 to summarize is this verse reminds me of the importance of not going beyond what the Bible says. Now listen carefully. Because I think these are some of the most important words in the whole book. Prognosticating is not the same as biblical preaching. I'm not against futurists who look at patterns and study patterns and computer models and graphs, we need them. One of America's greatest strategists who worked in an office in the Pentagon unseen but was really the brains behind Henry Kissinger and Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush and, and the defeat of the Soviet Union died yesterday at 97 years old. He worked all the way into his 90s. But what he did was study graphs and models. He was prognosticating. But he was building it upon something. My job as a pastor is not to be a prognosticator. You see, preaching biblical prophecy, and I think that's what some people get guilty of with some of the books, and then they go, oh, I've got to write another book. It's not the same. Remember the one guy, 88 Reasons Jesus is going to come in 1988? He missed it, so he wrote a book the next year, and it was a bestseller, 89 Reasons Why He Was Going to Come in 89. You know, it just dumb things like that. 
one respected man wrote a book of how that the first Gulf War was beginning of the end and how it was all, he just he saw it and it was all going to happen and very respected man and I remember looking at his book and thinking of these very words and I go this is prognostication and you know it's the reason we don't do silly things around here like rapture ready revivals you know we're not going to prognosticate we're going to teach you the Bible but the purpose of biblical preaching is to teach us to obey the Word of God if you will love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if you will love your neighbor as you love yourself, you're going to be ready. Okay, that's a work of grace in your heart. God blesses the one, Revelation 1-3. This is why God teaches us this. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listens to its message and obeys what it says for the time is near. Revelation chapter 11. Now, that's another fascinating one. And we spent quite a bit of time on this. This is the sign ministry of the two witnesses. They're both a sign and they have a ministry. If you'll remember, they preached against the sins, the obvious sins of the world. Somehow or another, the entire world, the entire world will hear their message. I am not sure, and I was very honest during this message, I'm not sure that this is a literal two men. And I explained to you why I did not believe that it was Enoch and why I did not believe it was Moses or Elijah, as some people try, try to say. It may be. I said that. It's a, it may be. I'm not saying it's not. Here's why I don't believe that. But for the first time in history, we are capable now of literally everybody being able to see and hear. Because you don't need it. A lot of people are even cutting their television now. They're cutting their cable and they're just using all internet. They're watching on their phones and their iPads or whatever kind of tablet you use. And it's just the first time in the world you literally can see what's going on. But God says, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1260 days. Well, there's three things that you need to see there. If these two witnesses, if these two witnesses are what I think they may be, I think it may be the power of God being manifested in the tribulation saints, ministering especially where they're at right now. For instance, yesterday in Hong Kong, the umbrella movement, the leaders of the umbrella movement, which is a, was a 77-year-old Baptist pastor, a banker and a college professor. They were convicted yesterday in Hong Kong and China wants to extradite them and that goes against the agreement of China and Hong Kong and the extradition policy. Also, it goes to the judge who made the decision under pressure from Beijing literally has disobeyed their own uh, Constitution or whatever it is they call it with China, which is going to weaken the defense of public expressions. And what these three Christian men who led a movement that grew and grew and grew, it all came out of their faith in God to the point that they were shutting down the busiest sections of Hong Kong and people were sharing their faith. That's why it became known as the umbrella movement. They carried, and I'm sure you've seen this on television or the news. They carried the yellow umbrellas. All of this came out of an expression of faith. And when I read, I looked at that, I thought, wow, this could be exactly what this could be. But now if it is literally 
two men, remember there's a lot of symbolism in this book. If it is these two men, whether it's tribulation saints or two men, the power of God is going to be manifested through them. Second thing is, they're clothed in burlap, which was always a sign of repentance. Not necessarily repentance of their sins, but repentance of the sins of the world they're living in. Friends, America, for instance, if we wanted to wear burlap as an expression of repentance, that would be totally in keeping when you see what's happening in our country today. When you see injustice being called justice and justice being called injustice that's taking place around us even as we speak tonight. Revelation 12 is the sign of the woman and the dragon. There has never been a time in the church for indecisiveness, and that's what this sign of the woman and the dragon is all about. <clears throat> when we looked at this, well, let me read the chapter, and then I'll give an explanation. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance, and I saw a woman clothed with sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head, and she was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event, and I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his head. Circle that word, uh, that phrase in the first uh, line, great significance, and then circle again. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. There's, this is two events here that you're looking at. I see so much into this one symbolism here. Number one, I see the birth of Christ. And how Herod immediately wanted to kill the Christ child. And how he slew all the children in Bethlehem. And we sing about that and remember that every year at Christmas and right after Christmas. But I also see this as Satan's desire to destroy the nation of Israel. But I also see, and remember we talked about this, how symbolism can, it can carry over. It's almost multi-purpose. I can also see where it's a symbolism of the church as well. Because in every instance, in the Old Testament, and we looked at this carefully, in the Old Testament, the enemy was trying to destroy, trying to destroy the Messianic line. Remember, Seth is who the Messianic line came through. We looked at that when we went through the book of Genesis, and the scheme was if he could corrupt the whole human race, and there wasn't a pure line, then Christ would not be born. Secondly, we looked at this and we saw his continual desire to destroy Israel and how Israel almost destroyed her own self through her compromise, but God kept his word to Abraham, he kept his word to Joseph, and he, he, he kept redeeming, he let them go off into persecution, let them go off in exile, but they would repent and come back. But then you see the church, not only the birth of Christ in Israel, but then you see the church and how, especially after the day of Pentecost, the fury that after a few, for the first few years, the church relatively was doing fairly well. A num great number of priests, the book of Acts tell us, the church was a Jewish church. And because the church wasn't scattering, just like they weren't scattering in Genesis, remember we talked about that? Then persecution broke out and the church scattered. And of course, you know the rest of the story, going to Antioch and to the utmost parts of the world. There's so much here, I can't go back through all of it. But the fact of the matter is, is that in all of his attempts to destroy, God preserves, he preserved the messianic line, he preserved Israel, he preserved the Christ child, and he preserves you and I tonight. Don't clap. He preserves you and I. Revelation 13. We'll see the beast that comes up out of the sea and he wars against the believers. The beast is the Antichrist. This chapter warns us about, and everybody gets all caught up in the Antichrist, 
But what you're seeing here is the demonization of governments and how that governments can literally become demonized and used to persecute the body of Christ. I personally believe that's what's happening in a lot of these, these radical Islamic countries, these radical uh, Hindu countries, uh, places that, that have atheistic governments where they persecute believers. Like I was speaking of, of Cuba just a few moments ago. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads, ten horns with ten crowns on its horns. And written on each head were the names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, the devil, the dragon gave, his be gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. This man will be evil incarnate. The beast or the false prophet that comes from the earth, he comes to deceive. Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. He had two horns like those of a dragon, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon. Verse 11, verse 14, with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast or the Antichrist, he deceived all the people who belong to this world. He doesn't deceive the saints, but he deceives all those that belong to this world. And he ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast who had been fatally wounded. We talked about that and then came back to life. There was a rumor going around that Nero, you know, was going to come back to life. Every generation has had its Antichrist. So somebody asked me, do you think the Antichrist has been born? I think it's very possible. I think there's always been somebody waiting in the wings, but it's just not God's time yet. I think Hitler was a form of Antichrist. Hitler, the more I read about Hitler, he set himself up to be worshipped in the church and had his picture and his image put behind the uh, communion altars. And that's the reason he was persecuting believers the way he was persecuting, the reason godly people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer died and the movie Valkyrie takes a little bit of artistic license about, you know, Bonhoeffer and the bombing of, of Hitler, but that's another story for another time. And then, of course, this is the chapter we also get the uh, infamous 666, Revelation 13, 16. He required the beast, he required everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or the forehead. And, of course, we talked about nobody will get the mark not knowing that they're not getting the mark. I mean, you're going to have to willingly submit to this. So there's going to be a choice made. At that point, it's another choice. You're going to, to get that mark, to buy or sell, you're saying, I'm going to worship the beast. And that's, that's what it is. So don't be worried about, number one, I sincerely believe we'll be caught up in the rapture. Secondly, even those that are alive during this time, they'll know whether to reject. Revelation 14, once again, we're able to see into eternity. Whoops, I just... Busted my notes up. We're able to see into eternity the victory that awaits all those that overcome. The 144,000 are not who the Jehovah's Witnesses have built a whole cult around. Uh, you know, the 144,000, they represent those who have endured persecution and faithfully witnessed for Christ. And this is the night where I dealt with uh, biblical numbers and their symbolism. You can go back and listen to that message later. Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. These were people with pure hearts and pure lives. Revelation 15 are the bold judgments. And what you need to remember about the bold judgments are they are universal, and this is the final defeat of evil. This is the final defeat of evil before the millennium. Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, 
which would bring God's wrath to completion. Circle that phrase. We did that when I preached on this just a few weeks ago, God's wrath to completion. These, these harps, these bowls, these trumpets, they, there's a flow here. They're concurrent. They're just they're flowing here together. And so what you're seeing is that around the world, it's going to be a time like no other time. That beast, will, that antichrist will literally be able to set up a government. But, as we've already seen, there are going to be people that resist him. Not only the church, there will be governments that resist him. Just like in China this evening, you know, they're sending people to re-education camps from different countries. Um, same thing is happening in um, Miramar, what we used to call Burma. Thank you. What we used to call Burma. Same thing happening in Miramar tonight. Revelation 16 is a reminder in the midst of the coming judgments, we've got to be ready for the return of Christ. Now, I'm saying we've got to be ready. Paul, John writes right here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who are watching for me who keep their clothing ready so they'll not have to walk around naked and ashamed. It's important that I stop right here for just a moment and... And remember what I said, you've got to read the way the early churches would have read it. The, those seven churches were experiencing tremendous persecution with the exception, perhaps, of Laodicea. And Laodicea wasn't experiencing persecution because they were compromising with the world. Okay? They were compromising. Jezebel was trying to lead the church down that path, this false prophetess. All of this would have helped them understand there are going to be some things happening in the future, but it will help them understand what they're going through right now. But please remember this. The early church, from everything that I can read, and I have read so many books, and, 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 the, and the church, and I'm sorry, you, I, I've not forgot, I don't look at you because you're way over there, and, but I forgot you were even here because I keep scanning. But God bless you. I'm glad you're here. The the early church truly expected Christ to return in their lifetime. You know, obviously Paul did. I expect him to return in my lifetime. But I tell people all the time, you know, be ready, just like this passage we're going to read. Be ready for him to come tonight. But it may be 500 more years before he comes, so teach your children and teach them well. Okay? Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who are watching for me who keep their clothing ready so they'll not have to walk around naked and ashamed. Revelation 17 is a horrible chapter, and yet we found some humor in this chapter. This is the judgment of the great prostitute, this religious spirit of Babylon. Remember, this is the woman astride the beast, and she's holding in her cup, you know, that's full of all sorts of obscenities and She's richly decked out in clothing and jewels. And, and uh, she says, no harm's ever going to come to me. I don't need anybody. She doesn't have a husband. She's a harlot. I don't need anybody. I'll never suffer pain. She's going to be judged. And one of the seven angels who poured out the seven bowls came over and spoke to me. He says, come with me and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. And this religious spirit 
has influence when it says rules over many waters. We're talking about nations here. Chapter 18, we're told to come out of Babylon. And this is where I explain where, so, where people try to equate America or Britain or Europe with Babylon. They're missing the point. Babylon is a spirit. I'm going back to Genesis again. Remember, God says scatter. And they says, come, let's build ourselves a city. Let's make ourselves a name. Let's build a tower to the sky. It was a ziggurat for astrological projections. You know, we're going to be great. They were trying to find their way without God. That's humanity. That's the science God. Not science, but people who treat science as an idol. God says to us, come out of Babylon. It's not come out of Detroit. It's not come out of Atlanta or New York City or come out of Rome. It means come out of that system, that thought. Love not the world nor the things that are in it. The world is not people. It's the pride, the lust. It's the vanity. That's what God is saying, come out of. Then I heard another voice calling from heaven. Now listen, come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins or you will be punished with her. What's he saying? Jesus says you're going to be in this world but not of it. Don't partake in her sins. I used the illustration Leonard Ravenhill always used. Leonard Ravenhill said that you can catch a fish out of the ocean. He was born in salt water. All he's ever drank is salt water. All he's ever breathed in is salt water. And when you fillet that fish and cook it, you've got to salt it. Because even though he lived in the salt water, the salt never got into him. We can live in this world without allowing the world to get into us. And that's the point here. Revelation 19. Oh, wow. I had so much fun preaching on this, the wedding supper of the Lamb. After this particular message, I spent a lot of time talking with people about this. This is, this is what we're looking forward to. When the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. Honey, if you'll come on up to the piano, I'll wrap this up. You want to be there. You want to be there. It's going to be quite the party, isn't it? When you read it there, when, remember when we went through this and this, this intimacy? I mean, I, I was telling Zachary and Rachel when I did their wedding and uh, I was telling them, I said, guys, I, I just want you to know how sacred your marriage is. This intimacy, this life you're going to share. Rachel, you are so beautiful. You are, Zach, you're such a handsome young man. You're young, you're strong. And God uses your wedding as an illustration of his love for the church. It's so intimate. It's not the captain of the host that he's the captain and we're the soldiers it's not the king and we're the subjects it's not the lord and we're the servants and he is all of those things but it's the bridegroom coming for his bride come on victory <laughs> isn't that exciting i mean this was such a fun chapter to preach on revelation 20 it got even more fun this is the millennium and the binding of Satan. There's going to be this literal thousand year period. And to my friends who, who disagree that, and say it's symbolic of the whole church age. I don't have any problem with them. 
to my friends who say that, you know, we're going to bring in the millennium. I don't have any problem with them. Because in the end, we're all trying to get people to Jesus Christ. We're all trying to get people to know the Lord. But using the principles of interpretation that I share with you at the very first, I really believe this is going to be a literal thousand years because the word is used over and over and over again. A thousand year period. And my post-millennials friends, that didn't become popular until the late 1800s. And then World War I and World War II came along. And then Korea and Vietnam and suddenly the popularity that the world was going to get better and better and better. Jesus said it was going to get worse and worse and worse. Those who say it's symbolic of the church age, that's fine. But I'm going to tell you, it ain't anything like chapter 20 describes the millennium. There's going to be this literal thousand year when King Jesus comes back to this earth again. Not the rapture, but when he literally comes back to this earth and he sets up his kingdom. There will be a thousand years. Death, as we read in this chapter, is the great divider of human beings. It's the great divider. You've got to be ready. You've got to know the Lord. Revelation 21. I saw an angel coming down with, from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. Revelation 20, verse 15. Anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. For some reason, and I really struggle with this. I was honest with you about my struggle. God will release that devil again at the end of a thousand years. He'll go out and test people's hearts who's lived in this thousand year period of, of his righteous reign and there'll still be people that will rebel. Does this to show us the terrible consequences and the nature of sin. Don't underestimate. When you read this, the end of this, don't ever underestimate. You cannot play with sin. I don't fear the devil. I don't fear demons. I don't fear hell. But I fear the power of sin. Not because I haven't been saved from it. Not because I haven't been given power over it. But the seductive nature of pride. You're too good. The seductive nature of greed. You deserve this. Do you see what I'm saying? Psychologists call it rationalization. We call it temptation. That's what Jesus called it. And then those last two chapters. Ha, our origins were in a garden. But we're going to a city. A beautiful city. When I want to get a, when I want to get close to God, I don't go to downtown Detroit. I don't go to downtown Macon, Georgia when I get close to God. And I love my hometown. It's beautiful. I, you should all go and visit it sometime. It's, especially when the cherry trees are blooming. And they've already bloomed this year, so don't go this year. We got more cherry trees in Macon than Washington, D.C. has got. It's famous for its cherry trees. But when I want to get close to God, I go out to the country. I love to go for a walk and through the forest and sing and pray. And I love walking with Dick Krug on them trails in the metro park. Dick's got to bless every stinking person we meet, you know. We could get our walk done in a lot more faster time if Dick's got to stop and bless everybody and talk to them and witness to them. And I've learned so much from him. When we walk and we talk about the Lord... But we're going to a city that's unlike anything we've ever known before. 
And we talked about over, if we were to go up an elevator, it'd be over 7,000 floors. We talked about how big the city is going to be. There's a place for you. There's a place for me. I'll let you read these two verses later, these two passages later. I want to close this up. Here are a few lessons I think you can take. Revelation teaches me there is no place that God's love can't find me. Even in the midst of the tribulation, there's no place that God's love can't find me. Revelation teaches me that there's no problem, no warfare. I can't be bound up. I'm not hopeless. And whatever the situation, God will come and set me free. These aren't coming up on the screen, so I'm guessing you don't have them in your notes. You've got two inches, so write them down if you want them, or I'll share them with them later. Revelation teaches me, I ain't never going to lose. Don't come to correct my English. I'm from Macon, Georgia. I ain't never going to lose. Because Jesus is my champion. He's worthy to break the seals. Revelation teaches me, I have no need to fear. Jesus is always near. He's walking in and out among the churches. Remember that? We talked about that intimacy. He's walking in and out among the churches. Revelation teaches me, I just told somebody in my study before I walked out here tonight. I said, please don't ever think when I say something like, if you can stand the pulling, God will pull you through. Then I'm saying that to be funny. That comes out of some of the deepest, darkest nights of pain I've known. Revelation teaches me I can face anything. I can go through anything because God's power is with me. You see that through the whole book. And then finally, Revelation teaches me I'll never be lost because Jesus holds me in his hands. Jesus loves his church. Now, let's give the Lord a hand of praise. Hallelujah. Stand with me this evening. Is there a rehearsal tonight? Okay. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I stand, I stand. In all of you, I stand, I stand, in all of you, holy God.
I stand in of I stand. I stand in all of you. I stand. I stand in all of you. Holy God, to whom all praises do. I stand in all of you. I'm so grateful for this book. I'm so grateful, Lord, that your Holy Spirit helps us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. I'm so thankful that it wasn't just for the first church. It wasn't just for the seven churches. But that it is part of the word of God once and for all delivered to all the saints. And as you say in this book, Lord, we should never add to nor take away from this wonderful book. So I pray that you'll help us to walk in the blessing that comes from reading and applying this book. And Jesus, above all, to be ready when the trumpet sounds. Lord, I ask you for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I pray. Amen and amen.